0: You are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his
1: love. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him, and he began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, he is divided. He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven of all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemies the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are sitting outside looking for you. But who are my mother and my brothers, he said. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother.
0: Thank you, Barb. We're a team. All right. What a great Sunday as we open God's Word and study together. Occasionally, you just kind of wonder about how these Scripture passages fall. So here we are on a Sunday when we have guests with us, and we have a wonderful family occasion, and of all things, we have a passage about demons, the unforgivable sin, and family conflict. So welcome to worship. I was chuckling about this earlier in the week, just realizing what the scheduled passage was. But I have learned over time that I don't think this stuff falls as randomly as we might think on the surface. If you take a closer look, which we're going to get to do now in the next few minutes, I think we'll realize this is actually the perfect passage for Baptism Sunday. Jesus often said in his teaching, you remember this line that he'll say? The one who has ears, let him hear. And what he's asking us to do is not dismiss what he's saying because it's hard to understand, but to really get down and put our ear to the rail. That's the invitation. And I want to invite you to that this morning. There's stuff in this passage that might sound jarring or strange or confusing, but there's more here, I promise you. And Jesus invites us to take a closer look. So we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. If you're just joining us this morning, this is where we've been since Easter. And these vivid, action-oriented stories are going to take us actually all the way through summer. Just one piece at a time, we have this pattern where we meet on Sunday mornings, we take up a story, and we look at it together. And I encourage you to learn more about Jesus with us through this season. So today, he's speaking to us about the kingdom he's extending— And the family he invites us into. That's why I've entitled our message, The Kingdom and the Family. It's a marvelous passage, and we pick it up with this brief description in verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. The location is not named, but we would presume that it's still Capernaum. So in previous weeks, we've talked about that place. This is Jesus' home base for ministry in Galilee. And the house that's mentioned is probably Peter's. The disciple Peter, his brother Andrew, we think that's their house from chapter 1. And we talked in recent weeks about how Capernaum would have looked very different from Elk River or Big Lake or Zimmerman. would have had very narrow streets, everything densely built. The houses, by our comparison, pretty small. And so it's no surprise that the house and the street are jam packed with people who are flocking to see Jesus. And this funny little tidbit, too, that they don't even have room or time to eat. There's so many people. You couldn't even get to the kitchen to prepare a meal. Jesus had become that famous. And that's what's behind this first conflict that's introduced in verse 21. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Now, Jesus' family was from Nazareth. It was about 20 miles to the west as the crow flies. And we can assume here that 20 miles away, they've heard of all the ruckus that is happening around Jesus. Chapter 6 in Mark gives us the names of some of these family members, and some of them you know. The people of Nazareth say they're in 6-3. They're talking about Jesus, saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So this tells us that Joseph, first of all, Jesus' earthly father, must have passed away. But that after Jesus, Mary and Joseph had had children. Four brothers are mentioned, and then sisters in the plural. So Jesus' family, here's what's going on, and they travel 20 miles on foot. I don't know when the last time was. You traveled 20 miles on foot, but it's a ways. And they've come to take charge of him. It's the same word as to restrain him or to seize him by force. And it's because he's out of his mind. That's one word in the Greek, exeste, and it means he's gone bananas, He's off his rocker. Now what's fascinating is that though their response here is negative, we know that after Jesus' death, James is going to be a key leader in the church in Jerusalem and write the book named after him, the book of James. And Judas, or Jude in that list, will write the little book that comes right before Revelation. So something between now and then happens pretty dramatically in the lives of these brothers at least these two but that's for later for now here's where we are they just think that Jesus has lost it and we could give them the benefit of the doubt and think well maybe they've gone out of concern for him maybe we've experienced this in our own family systems you know they've gone to protect their brother from himself or something like that but more likely they're just plain worried about their family's reputation Jesus has caught the attention of the scribes and the teachers of the law and not in a good way. So they want to get him out of the spotlight before he embarrasses their whole family, brings shame on the whole family. But look what happens before they arrive. Verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So there's a lot there. Let's first talk about who these guys are. Jesus has already had run-ins with the teachers of the law, but only the regional ones out of his area. This delegation is coming all the way from Jerusalem. So it kind of reminds me of a crime thriller a crime drama, you know, when the feds arrive and then they take over the investigation. That is kind of what's happening here. This is big time now. It's got the attention of the capital. And that's where this delegation comes from. They come down from Jerusalem. And it says down, even though they're going north on the map. And that's because Jerusalem was surrounded by mountains. So they're literally descending their way north to Capernaum. And once they arrive, they say repeatedly. When it says said, it's in the imperfect tense. So it is a sustained smear campaign, we might call it. So they're in town, and they're going around, and they're saying that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. Now, that is both a serious-sounding allegation and one with a pretty funny name at the end. Beelzebub. It is this strange name that is simply in the Bible another word for Satan, so we're more familiar with that one. And that becomes clear by the next line when it says, by the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now here's where we in 21st century America might hit the pause button and say, okay, wait a minute. Demons, Satan, do we still believe this stuff? I think that's a fair question and one probably in our time that people would be asking. And you know, on the pendulum of history, we live in a time and place where, first of all, believing in God is murky enough. A fair number of Americans opt for a kind of vague, non-defined faith, spiritual but not religious they might say. That's a common description. Uh, would be called agnosticism. But then, how about this? When it comes to the fallen angel named Satan who is the lead adversary against God, that notion, statistically, is even less popular. And yet, depending on time and place, the pendulum swings in culture and in time from disregard to fascination. C.S. Lewis was an atheist at Oxford when he came to faith in Christ and he wrote about this phenomenon in the Screw Tape Letters. Here's what he said. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are... so the devils, the spiritual world, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Now what Lewis is ultimately arguing for is a measured, clear-eyed, biblical understanding of the existence of evil. And we acknowledge we live in a culture that largely disbelieves in the devil's existence. The movie The Usual Suspects, captures it brilliantly when it says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. Some of you remember that classic line from that movie. And yet others, even in our own time, have learned to see through this trick and come to other conclusions. And the growth in witchcraft and the occult is a clear testament to that. I would tell you in the last two weeks... I have seen a level of demonic influence that personally I have never experienced before. And I know it's almost unfair to tell you that and then not tell the story, but we don't have time this morning. But I'm telling you that this stuff is out there and it has influence in our community, even right here in Elk River. But suffice it to say, this stuff exists. We don't have to cower from it, but we have to respect it. And just in preparation for baptism, I dug out, you know, some of you I know have Lutheran background, so you remember the small catechism. I don't know if it's positive or negative memories. But Luther is talking about baptism. And here's a a line I underlined this week. He said, you have to realize that it is no joke at all to take action against the devil. That's in his baptismal booklet. And when he felt that he was under spiritual attack, do you know what Luther would say? Of all the things that he could say, when he felt he was under spiritual attack or he was facing temptation, here's what he would say. I am baptized. I am baptized. And it's not about the act. It is about his identity. When he is saying that, he is saying, I belong to Christ. But we need to move on now as I look at my notes and the time. We're going to move quickly now through the rest of this portion and then get back to that family conflict that we started with. The accusation is that Jesus is possessed by Satan. And I want us to note that they didn't deny Jesus' power. The miracles, the healings, the exorcisms, casting on demons, they cannot deny that this is happening all over Galilee. So instead, what do they do? They attribute it to Satan. And look what happens next in verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him. Remember, they're just out and about talking about this, he calls them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? Now parables are this distinct teaching style of Jesus where he uses analogy or comparison. And so they take the form of proverbial sayings or allegories or stories. We're going to see a couple of these. So he comes with a parable in verse 24 and he says, If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Now it's beyond the scope of this passage, but we could draw some application to what it means now to live in a divided nation, can't we? These words come as a sober warning to the path that we find ourselves on in this country. And if anyone can lead the way back to a greater sense of unity, even amidst disagreement... It has to be the followers of Jesus, doesn't it? There has to be those who would point the way to unity. So Jesus here, though, is talking about the spiritual realm, and he makes his point in verse 26, and he says, And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And then he builds on that in verse 27, and he says, In fact... No one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house as well. So this is the parable of allegory where the strong man is Satan who Jesus has come and bound. And the plundering of the strong man's house is Jesus now going about and casting out all of these demons who plague and possess people. And I don't think that you and I probably have the total grasp of what it means to have experienced the spiritual realm before Christ came and then after, once the strong man was bound and we now live in this era. My daughter Liana asked for a chess board for her birthday. So this was a proud dad moment because I was one of the founding members of my middle school's chess club. I don't know if that's something you're supposed to brag about or not, but (laughs) Hudson Middle School, 7th grade, Mr. Yell's class. But Liana's been learning now about chess. And I could just ask all of you here, too. Some of you play chess. What's the most powerful piece on the board? It's the queen. It's the queen. And if you capture your opponent's queen, well, then you can do a lot of plundering on the lesser pieces. In scene after scene, Jesus is sending these demons packing because he has bound and subdued their boss. So now watch how this comes into that difficult passage in verse 28. He says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now we rush right away to the second half of that sentence, don't we? And we go and talk about the unforgivable sin. But let's not miss what Jesus has said in the first half. That people can be forgiven all their sins. Every slanderous word. That's amazing grace. The power of Jesus. And nevertheless, we have to make sense of the second half of the sentence where it says there's a sin that will never be forgiven. And here it is in a nutshell you've ever wondered about this or you're hearing it for the first time and wondering about it here it is in summary it is the deliberate rejection and denial of God's presence in the ministry of Jesus to deny the power and work of the Holy Spirit and to ascribe it to Satan so practically speaking For a follower of Jesus to worry that they have committed somehow the unforgivable sin is actually evidence that they have not. You follow that? This is a warning for the one who would stand in willful scorn against God, not standing in repentance or humility before God, in the one who would slander the Holy Spirit. That's where the teachers of the law are in this story. But then we get to verse 31 and that earlier story about Jesus comes back around. We have this bracketed sense in this passage and Jesus' family comes back into view. So this will take us now through the home stretch, verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, "Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you." Now, why the highlights? Do you see what's emerging there as we've lit that up in the passage? You see this visual depiction of those who are standing on the outside and those who are on the inside. Do you see it in the words? Jesus has been inviting people to come and follow him. And he's inviting all people. We're only into the third chapter of Mark. We've seen people inviting uneducated fishermen, treacherous tax collectors, Women of poor reputation, the demon-possessed, the sick who were believed to be cursed. And he's saying to them, come and follow me. And yet here his own family is where? They're on the outside looking in. And the report comes in through the crowd. Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And in verse 33, Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? It's a scandalous question that Jesus asks. And in their culture, all the more so. Because family was for them the basis of social and economic life. Now, they didn't ask you what you want to be when you grow up. They said, what does your father do? Family was your source of identity. Life was essentially about preserving your family line, property, and honor. And all you have to do is go back and watch old movies, Gladiator, things like that. And you see Greco-Roman culture on display. Here is Jesus' family just arriving from a long journey and he doesn't even get up to greet them. So is Jesus saying here, I mean, we could take offense at this and wonder, is Jesus being rude? Is he saying that family is not important? And the Bible says, no, certainly not he upholds the clear teaching of Scripture about the value of family. The scene later at the cross, I'll just give you one example. In one of Jesus' very last actions, he's on the cross and he is putting the care of his mother into the hands of John. Look at the point that Jesus is making here in verse 34. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, here are my mother." And my brothers. Family is important. Jesus would never deny that. And yet, there is an even greater family that we have in belonging to Christ that is even stronger than blood. And it has but one requirement, and that is Jesus is saying, Come share my commitment to God, that you would love Him with all your heart. Let's follow Him. Verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Look at this line. Do you see the one thing that's added here? Just by the way. Sister. Do you see that added there? Jesus' regard for women, I am telling you, was absolutely amazing. And so we often think about these guys, the twelve, But we would do well to remember the women who followed Jesus as well. And with that, I'm going to conclude just with a few final words. At the Y Church, we often talk about the church as a family. You know, you get a congregational mailing and it might say, Dear Y Church family. And I just want to tell you that that's not cutesy language that we just picked up along the way. But that is said out of conviction. It's truth. The church is a family. And not just a family like a club where you show up and a scone and a coffee and a seat is waiting for you to enjoy. No, the church is a family on a mission. And Jesus is saying to us in this text, if we're not careful, we could miss it. We could walk right on by. Jesus' family, at least at this point in their story, was missing it. The teachers of the law had missed it. They'd missed Jesus And the opportunity that they had to be part of his family and to carry out the purposes of God. So Jesus takes these two stories and is essentially asking us today, he's asking me and you, are you in or out? That's what he wants to know from each one of us. And may God give us the courage and the clarity. And the conviction to answer. I am baptized. I belong to Christ. Stronger than blood. I am in his family. I am in. Forever. Let's pray together. Oh our Father in heaven. What an invitation that you have given to us in Jesus. And Lord, each one of us, thinking about this passage, wrestling with these things, maybe in different ways across this room, across the gym this morning, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would have room, that we would invite you to speak and to show us the way. Lord, some of us have tried a lot of years in our life to maybe just kind of go at life with a vague sense of who you are, to profess some belief in God but to not really give that much definition and I pray that today would be a day when we would see the beauty and power and truth of Jesus on full display and we would say yes I am in I belong to you Lord we thank you for your grace at work in our life In Jesus mighty name Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewhychurch.org.